On land, in many parts of the world now, heat is shimmering off the pavement and forest fires are burning. So are the world's oceans. More than 40% of the oceans are registering surface temperatures never seen in recorded history. And that figure is expected to pass 50% by September. One weather buoy in Florida's shallow and enclosed Manatee Bay recently measured water temperatures at an astonishing 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Riley Kaminer, an on-point listener from Miami, says it's not just a reading on a marine thermometer. You can feel the difference in the water. I spent the day at the beach with my partner a couple weeks ago. The ocean is always a bit warmer in the summer, but for the first time, this felt really quite different. That temperature plus the rampant sargassum made for an uncomfortable beach day. I'm no climate scientist, but it seems to me that that doesn't bode very well for our planet. Ted Firkins is the Chief of Interpretation and Education at Florida's Biscayne National Park. He says Florida's fate cannot be separated from the fate of the waters that surround it. So many livelihoods here in the state of Florida are based on the ocean in one way or another. That could be that they're in commercial fishing. That could be that they're in the restaurant industry and that they serve fresh Florida seafood. There is a huge recreational fishing industry here. There's a very big boat industry and and boat manufacturers and the sale of boats has really risen in the last couple of years. We've got big ports that have billions of dollars worth of goods and merchandise coming through each year. We've got a big cruise industry that departs from Florida that brings in lots and lots of visitors. We've got these amazing beaches where people plan their vacations to come to. So just so much of the Florida economy is based on our proximity to the ocean and use of the ocean. Perkins also says where he works, Biscayne National Park, is home to some of the most famous sea-based residents in all of Florida. It's coral reefs. Biscayne National Park is 173,000 acres. 95% of that is ocean. So we do have some of the northernmost Florida Keys as landmass, and we do have some of the shoreline, but the vast majority of the acreage of Biscayne National Park is the ocean. We've got the Florida Keys Coral Reef Track, which is the third largest living reef in the world, and it runs about 350 miles along part of the east coast of Florida and down the Florida Keys, you know, I would add that to another part of our economy. The Florida Keys like to call themselves the dive capital of the United States for people to come down and and dive the wrecks and the reefs here. Well, listener Manny Gilbert called us to sound the alarm about those same reefs. I live in the middle of the Florida Keys. I've been a resident there for over 30 years. And I've never seen the water colors change into a pea green as I have this last year. And now with the high temperatures of the water, I can just look out in the water and see the coral turning pink and then white. We have a serious, beyond serious issue now with this global warming.
As with any surprising environmental event, there's always debate. Are the measurements wrong? Is this an outlier year? Or is it another data point in the trend towards a hotter, less hospitable planet? Well, listener Brian in Fort Lauderdale believes there's no reason to worry. We recorded a 100-degree surface temperature, but if you go down maybe one foot or more, you're going to see normal temperatures throughout the coast of Florida. It does not affect the reefs. It is at the surface, and we are avid fishermen and divers, and we don't see how this can play into destruction of reefs when it is only at the surface. The surface temperatures are recording freakishly high numbers, and yes, water cools as you go deeper. But our guests today say the relative difference in the thermocline isn't what matters. It's not the relative difference. The real numbers to focus on are the absolute increases we are seeing in ocean temperatures at every depth, year after year. Park ranger Ted Firkins at Biscayne National Park says, not only should we try to understand what's happening to the world's oceans, we must. Warming waters are about more than commerce and recreation. It's about understanding the marine ecosystems that support all life on Earth, ecosystems that humans are reliant on and drawn to, whether we realize it or not. We are a land-dwelling species, human beings. We don't live in the ocean, yet we're drawn to it, and we just have to go there. 50% of the U.S. population, half of us live within 50 miles of the ocean. That's a small portion of the actual landmass of the United States, yet that's where we concentrate. So we're, we're just drawn to the ocean. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we are going to try to better understand why so much of the world is, right now, literally in hot water. Well, joining me first from Key Largo, Florida, is Katie Lesneski. She's a marine biologist and monitoring coordinator for Mission Iconic Reefs. That's at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Katie, welcome to On Point. Hello, Magna. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. So do you get to dive uh, frequently in the waters that we're talking about? I do, yes. I dive on a weekly basis as part of my position as a scientist here, but I'm also an avid recreational diver. I like to go out on the reefs here just to look at the beautiful ecosystem, as well as assist in things like uh, debris removal, marine debris removal, to help protect these important ecosystems. Okay, so then over the past, let's say, four to six weeks or so, what have you been seeing on your dives? So unfortunately, over this very short time frame, myself, my colleagues, other recreational divers in the Florida Keys have seen a steep decline in the health of corals that are the actual organisms that make up the coral reefs here. So in late June, we were starting to see corals undergoing paling, which is a precursor to coral bleaching. And since then, the bleaching has become more widespread uh, not only in very shallow reef areas where the water tends to be warmer, 
but as well as some of the deeper reef areas where we're seeing that warm water uh, essentially slowly creep into those areas. What kind of depths are you talking about? So the very shallow reefs that have the most bleaching, so many different species are bleaching, many individuals are bleaching, those are anywhere from about 20 feet to corals that, you know, get within a couple feet of the surface. Uh, the deeper reefs, 60 plus feet, there's definitely at this point some bleaching occurring in some of those areas. And we'll be continuing to track this event uh, at as many reefs as possible in the coming weeks. Have you ever seen um, the kind of bleaching that you're wit witnessing now occur at such a rapid pace in the waters uh, around the Florida Keys or, or elsewhere on the floor near the Florida coastline? I have personally not witnessed this, and many of the colleagues that I work with and others in this field who have spent more time than myself on reefs have also never seen anything quite like this, where so early on in the season, we were already seeing such high water temperatures, even water temperatures taken from data recorders that are at the bottom of the reef. And that has been directly linked to a spike in widespread bleaching and unfortunately the mortality of corals uh, in reefs all across the Florida Keys. And it is now, we're, we're nearing mid-August and typically during warm years, we would see this level of bleaching uh, later in August and into September. But this has been something that we have been witnessing since July in some areas. So it is, it is clearly coming into focus as an unprecedented event here. Can you tell me a little bit more about the numbers that can describe how anomalous uh, this year is. So, for example, for those uh, recordings that are taking place at mm -hmm. the bottom of the reefs, what's what would you expect to be the normal temperature around this time of year versus what you're actually seeing? Yeah, so I'll give you an example of Sombrero Reef, which is in the Middle Keys, and it's one of the mission iconic reefs that we are actively restoring. And typically during July, at the bottom of the, of the um, reef area, we would see temperatures of maybe around 87 degrees Fahrenheit. Back in July, we had recordings of 93, 94 degrees Fahrenheit over several days, which is a high enough temperature that it can actually affect the health of the coral. And shortly after that uh, pulse of warm water, we had teams go out and do an assessment and saw that corals absolutely were affected by that um, undergoing bleaching. And unfortunately, we've recorded that a number of corals have died. Wow. And so those high temperatures, again, were at 20, 30, 40, 50 feet even. So Sombrero Reef, the, the temperatures that were taken there are 15 to 20 feet. And so 15 to 20, it really... Okay. Yes. Yeah, it really has been um, so far these sh very shallow reefs that have hit the hardest, but we're expecting continually elevated not only air temperatures, but but ocean temperatures, which over the course of time into late August and September could very much affect those deeper regions more. Okay. So when we come back from the break, Katie, I want to hear a little bit more about the health 
and prospect of the reefs that you're studying, trying to preserve and dive in. And we'll also talk with the director of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution about what warmer water temperatures worldwide mean for the planet as a whole. Back in a minute. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're trying to understand what's driving the unusually high water temperatures that we're seeing in 40 and soon to be 50% of the world's oceans. I'm joined today by Katie Lesneski. She is a marine biologist and monitoring coordinator at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's project called Mission Iconic Reefs. Uh, Now, Katie, actually, could you just help us take a step back and describe, uh, you know, as vividly as you can, the reefs that you dive in? um, What do they look like? Um, How much life is on them? What colors do you see when they're in a healthy state? Yeah, so healthy reefs that are very important, not only ecologically, but also economically to Florida are, as you said, very vibrant, full of life, and actually very noisy. Uh, So earlier this year, working on these reefs throughout the Florida Keys region, you know, any reef that you pop onto, you put your scuba gear on and you descend through the water. And as you get closer to the reef, you're seeing all of these colors pop out. So the corals themselves, these rich greens and browns and oranges and the sea fans, bright purple with colorful fish, blues, greens and yellows. I mean, essentially every color of the rainbow you can find on reefs. Um, There's sea turtles here. There's sharks. There are all sorts of different game fish uh, that swim through the reefs that people love to come here to fish. And it's very noisy. Uh, You can hear fish eating. You can hear groupers grunting. Um, You can sometimes hear sharks kind of sifting through uh, rocks, especially the nurse sharks who are trying to get around. Um, So it's really a lively place that awakens all your senses when we have a healthy reef. Wow. Groupers grunting. (laughs) What does that sound like? It sounds like um, uh, kind of a low boom. Other people describe it as as a barking noise. Okay. 
Fantastic. So it, it awakens all your senses. So then when we start seeing these temperature-driven uh, bleaching events happen in, in, those, in those same reefs, does it have an immediate... So first of all, the bleaching is actually the loss of what the bacteria that, that uh, create the color uh, on, the, on the coral. Is that right? Yeah. So this is a, a very important concept to kind of understand how bleaching occurs. So corals themselves are actually an animal and within their tissues, they host a single cell algae. Um, they also have bacteria, fungi, viruses that are all part of a healthy coral um, in the rest of their, their tissue and their mucus. Um, but during coral bleaching, which is a stress response and it can be caused by warm temperatures among other things, um, that single-celled algae that provides the coral with its color as well as most of its food will actually leave the tissue. And what's left behind is the clear coral tissue and that white limestone skeleton underneath. So the coral mm -hmm. essentially looks like it has been bleached. I see. Okay. But Im importantly, as you said, the algae is providing the coral with its food. So how long can the coral survive then in this bleach state? So during periods of mild bleaching um, or a mild increase in temperature, corals can survive in that state for, for several weeks. Um, unfortunately, at some of the reefs that we have seen here, that period of death is, is occurring within a matter of days just because the water is so hot. Um, but it is definitely important to remember that just because a coral bleaches doesn't automatically mean it will die. Um, if environmental conditions do improve, they, they can indeed recover. Okay, so that's hopeful and good news. On the other hand, though, I'm seeing some predictions that uh, ocean temperatures may continue to rise or at the very least stay high through September. So that's a total of many weeks of uh, potential bleaching in some of these reefs. Yes, exactly. So the NOAA Coral Reef Watch Program uh, generates predictions about bleaching based on satellite data collected from uh, collected on sea surface temperatures, as well as real-time data transmitted from buoys or other instrumentation. And right now, the forecast shows that we can expect to see ongoing widespread bleaching and subsequent mortality uh, for the next nine to 12 weeks. So we are uh, continually bracing to continue to witness that. Um, and we will be collecting as much data as possible about the effects on the reef here. Um, I will say that there are corals that we have seen on these deeply affected reefs uh, that are still healthy. It's it's very few, but that does provide us hope. And those are the individuals that we will absolutely be tracking and studying and trying to understand why they are resilient in, in the face of this bleaching event. Okay. S coral, though, are, they're not just these beautiful reef-dwelling organisms that sparkle the eyes of divers. <laughs> they, the reefs themselves, right, are what I think you've said in the past, they're less than 1% of the ocean, but 25% of all marine life rely on uh, coral reefs at some point in time. Um, and also they provide a physical barrier for wave energy as well. So what impact would losing these reefs have on the broader ecosystem uh, that rely on them? 
Yeah, so you did a great job of summing up uh, some of those ecological benefits that reefs provide. So uh, recently down here in Florida, we had lo mini lobster season and now lobster season is open and coral reefs provide essential habitat for lobsters that people enjoy fishing, enjoy eating. Um, you know, folks come down here to scuba dive on these reefs and really healthy reefs definitely could draw more people who want to learn how to scuba dive um, and enjoy these reefs. And so that is directly tied into the economy as well. Um, you mentioned the fact that they provide a natural barrier during storms for wave energy. So they're reducing uh, coastal erosion and flooding during storms, which directly in turn benefits the taxpayer uh, in providing that extra protection. So with the loss of corals from bleaching, what essentially happens is, is if they do die, they will start to disintegrate over time. And the reef framework and the habitat itself will essentially crumble. And so all the different animals that rely on that habitat will have to find somewhere else if they can. Um, but that collapse in the framework is also directly tied to potential economic losses. So it's really important to consider it from both sides, both the ecology and the economic impact. Okay. I've just got a couple more questions about the coral reefs specifically, and then we're going to broaden our analysis to uh, oceans around the world. But you heard a bit earlier at the top of the show, Katie, uh, a caller, an on-point listener who called in and said he's not noticing any differences mm -hmm. in deeper waters and is also a diver. What do you re what's your response to that? I mean, how can you explain uh, what he's seeing versus what you're seeing in the places you dive? Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that Collar was uh, diving and fishing off of Fort Lauderdale, which mm -hmm. is about 50 miles north of any of the reefs that we work on here. And while that might not seem very far, um, it is a different offshore reef structure system. Uh, there are different currents and water exchanges that come into play uh, that lead to different environmental conditions, you know, off Fort Lauderdale versus the Keys. And those different environmental conditions will drive differences in ecology and the ecological response. Um, so we, as I mentioned, we have temperature loggers and other environmental loggers that are deployed at the bottom of these reefs all throughout the Keys. And we're pulling that data and those temperatures um, and that data, we, we have very a uh, lot of confidence in how accurate and precise they are. Um, the reefs here, you know, there's on almost every shallow reef, you will absolutely see bleaching. Uh, that is undeniable. Uh, folks around here who I know in the community who are not scientists, um, they're able to see it with their own eyes. And, you know, I, I would take it as a sign of hope that off of Fort Lauderdale, there isn't this significant amount of impact right now. Um, and hopefully those reefs continue to stay healthy and continue to escape uh, the the heat and the effects that are happening down here. Yeah, I appreciate your your very clear uh, explanation of the difference that 50 miles can make, because I think it's really important to emphasize that. We also at the top of the show played uh, a little bit of tape for another caller in Key West who was speaking with uh, the sound of shock in his voice almost yes. at what he was seeing uh, where uh, around where he is. So one of the goals that we hope to achieve with this hour is to really... Uh, 
have people think beyond sort of their immediate realm of experience into the broader global systems, the broader global changes we're seeing in marine environments around the world and how that's all going to impact us. So Katie uh, Lesneski and Key Largo, just hang on for one minute because I want to hear <laughs> from some more listeners and then bring in, um, again, a global marine expert. So first of all, we got a call from Tallahassee, Florida. On Point listener Melissa told us that she is not feeling any changes in the waters where she swims. I was in Panama City Beach literally this morning and did get in the Gulf. And I did not notice that the temperature was too warm. It was quite refreshing and the water was beautiful. However, I don't know what it's like in any other part of the state. I have been traveling to this particular timeshare since 1980 the same week every year. So to me, it is definitely comfortable. So I didn't notice any warming. On the other hand, we got a call from Tom, who lives in Seattle, Washington. He left us a Vox Pop to say warm is a relative term when it comes to the world's oceans. It depends on where you're getting your feet wet. But still, he thinks the problems of increasing water temperature is real and getting worse. As a former Floridian who lived in Florida in the 1990s, I do want to make folks aware that the ocean water in Miami, where I lived, got very warm every summer. So it is maybe not as alarming as it may sound if you are consistently used to ocean water in Washington State or Massachusetts, where it will always be colder. It's just clearly getting worse. Tom, I have to say, I appreciate your call. Uh, As a native Pacific Northwesterner, I know how cold the Pacific is off the coast of Oregon and Washington. It's way colder than it is off the coast of Massachusetts. But down in Florida, as we've been talking about, 101 degree temperature recorded in at least one weather buoy. Well, joining us now is Peter Domenical. He's an oceanographer and paleoclimatologist and also director of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Peter, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Megna. I understand you're in Nantucket today, so surrounded by water as well. When you first saw the data coming in from the waters you know, around Florida, southern Florida especially, and let's just focus on that 101-degree temperature mark that that buoy recorded in Manatee Bay. What was your first response? Well, it was uh, alarming to many of us, indeed. I mean, indeed, the people living there and also those of us who are climate scientists. Uh, but it's important to recognize, too, that it is an enclosed bay. It's not an entire section of the ocean. So I think uh, understanding it within the context of uh, a limited embayment area, it's understandable that it can get warmer like that, but it is 101 degrees is exceptional. Mm -hmm. We heard Katie, though, just now say that in the places that she's trying to preserve and study, that there's unusually been unusually high water temperatures, uh, even at 20, 30, 40, 50 feet below the surface. So how pervasive right now uh, is this high water temperature problem? Where else in the world are we seeing it? Well, we're seeing it almost all over the world, but certainly in, in uh, specific parts of the world. 
So for example, the region in the Gulf of Mexico and off of Florida has warmed up a great deal. One of the most uh, concerning trends is actually the North Atlantic. The North Atlantic is now uh, the warmest it has ever been in recorded history. We've been measuring ocean temperatures for about 100 years, actually can be extended back for 150 years. And this is the warmest we've ever seen in the entire North Atlantic Basin. How much warmer than usual? Right. So it's about one and a half degrees centigrade warmer than uh, the uh, historical period. And, uh, you know, that's more than twice as warm as it has been in the past. And so, I mean, just to uh, give our listeners uh, some context, it's over 15 degrees centigrade warmer off of Nova Scotia and off of uh, Newfoundland right now. More than 15 degrees C? Wow. No, 15 degrees uh, Fahrenheit warmer. Yes. Oh, oh, I thought you said degrees centigrade. No, okay, no, so 15, 15 degrees, but yeah, 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, that's a lot uh, either way. Now, I want to get right to something that uh, I know a lot of people may be wondering because there's there's some claims or analysis out there that are saying that this is simply a, a maybe an, an outlier year. It's not necessarily due to overall and continuous warming of the world's oceans driven by uh, human-caused climate change, but rather what we're seeing is just a really vigorous El Nino right now. Uh, Peter... What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to take that on. So the warming of the global oceans uh, is, in fact, the single best indicator of global warming that we have for the planet. Uh, the oceans have absorbed more than 93% of the excess heating that we get from the buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so the oceans are doing us a, a big favor right now by absorbing all that heat. Remember, the ocean or water has uh, 3,000 times the heat capacity of air. And so as the oceans warm, they can take up this heat that would otherwise be in the atmosphere. So we can thank the oceans for really protecting us from really extreme heat. But tell me a little bit more then about how you would scientifically differentiate uh, the global warming caused effects on, uh, on ocean warming versus what's driven by an El, El Nino. Right. So that's a, that's a great question. So we have 4,000 autonomous robots in the ocean that are basically pogo sticking up uh, and down in the ocean to a, uh, from the surface to a depth of about a half a mile. And then they surface again. And as they go up and down in the ocean, remember, these are all over in all the world's oceans right now. Uh, they measure temperature and salinity and pressure. And they basically show that the oceans are warming, not only at the surface, but at depth as well. Well, I'm going to he want to hear a little bit more about that when we come back from a short break. So Peter Domenical and Katie Lizneski, hang on for a moment. We'll be back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Katie Lizneski is with us, and so is Peter Domenical. Uh, he's joining us from Nantucket, and Katie's on Key Largo in Florida, and we're talking about the unusually high seawater temperatures we're seeing in 40 and soon to be 50% of the world's oceans. And Peter, before the break, you were you were describing how we can tell the difference between global warming caused uh ocean temperature rises versus El Nino caused temperature rises. Keep describing that to me because I'm still not quite clear how we can uh, differentiate the two. Right. So I'm happy to uh, clarify that. So from these uh, robots and, and basically ship measurements in the ocean, we can document that the oceans are indeed warming all around the world. In fact, they reached the warmest ocean temperatures ever measured. Uh, globally uh, just this year. In fact, July was a, an absolute record of the oceans having warmed up about one degree centigrade around the world. Now, that's just the average planetary warming. Now, El Nino is this four to six year natural oscillation of waters in the tropical Pacific. And basically, it oscillates between two extremes. One is called La Nina, and that is a, an amplification of the current uh, situation in the equatorial Pacific, where the waters are warmer off of Australia and they're colder off of Peru. Now, what we're experiencing this year is called El Nino, and I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with that. That is a warming in the tropical eastern Pacific and a, and a relative cooling off of Australia. So it's the opposite pattern. What happens during El Nino, it's a, it's a release of tremendous ocean heat back to the atmosphere. Now, remember we said that the ocean has about 3,000 times the heat content of the atmosphere. Well, in past years, the ocean has been accumulating all that heat, and now it's a time for that to kind of burp itself out, if you will, or release that heat back to the atmosphere. And so if we look back over uh, really the last century or so of temperature changes, we find that the warmest years in any decade were in fact El Nino years. And we are, are headed right now into a strong El Nino period, which will develop in the wintertime uh, later this year and into 2024. I see. So what you're saying is that baseline water temperatures have been rising. And now what we're seeing, what we have is an El Nino effect on top of that. So, so that's why exactly. you're saying it's undeniable yeah. that human caused climate change is, is, is the baseline driver here. Right. And then, you know, one of the other sort of indicators of, the, the fact that the whole planet is warming is that when you actually measure the ocean warming, it's not just the skin of the ocean. It's not just in one place. It actually extends all the way through the water column as far as we can measure. And we can measure now down to uh, a mile or two miles into the ocean. So we can actually trace this warming to the bottom of the seafloor. Meaning that your paleoclimatologist's uh, expertise is coming in here? Have, have, are there patterns of similar warming in, in, the, in the deep past? 
Well, we have to go back quite far in time to, to find a time when the Earth has been as warm as it is today. It's certainly the warmest that it's been throughout what's called the Holocene, which is the time of human civilization spanning the last 10 or 12,000 years. But we believe we have to actually reach back further in time, uh, back to uh, at, at least 100,000 years, perhaps even earlier than that, to get to a time that was as warm as today. And then where it's headed in the decades ahead is basically we haven't seen this for many millions, even tens of millions of years. Oh, gosh. Okay. Katie, I really appreciate your patience uh, in listening to the analysis that, that Peter's offering there. I want to sort of tie your two areas of research together here, because it suddenly occurred to me that the bleaching of the coral reefs are devastating. It's, it's terrible. And part of the reason why is because the coral can't move. But are you seeing other evidence of long-term impact uh, regard, when it comes to these warmer waters on um, other forms of marine life? Are they, are they moving? Are they changing their location? I mean, what's happening sort of year by year in terms of, uh, of marine life around where you are as the waters get warmer? That's a great question, and it's definitely important for us to consider how other marine life is affected um, just because these ecosystems are so diverse. So here in the Florida Keys, we have what we call the ocean side, which is out towards the east where the coral reefs are. And then we have the bay side, which is to the west of the Florida Keys where Florida Bay is. And Florida Bay is a, a very shallow environment, and it's full of seagrass and sponges and many different types of fish um, that people come here to, to fish for, like game fish. Um, and those fish will, some of them, um, migrate between both sides, so the ocean side and the bay side. Um, unfortunately, we're already hearing reports of large areas of seagrass die-off, um, as well as sponges that are dying from the unusually high water temperatures. Uh, sponges are critical for water filtration. Um, and we also have been hearing reports of fish kills. So, um, mm. you know, a number of fish that are, are floating on the surface or are washing up onto the shoreline. And those are all indicators of a decreasing, a decrease in health of the environment here. Um, mm. exactly as you mentioned, you know, corals can't move once they choose a place to settle and they grow, that's where they are. And corals are very constrained by not only the water temperature that they live in, uh, they can't live in, in cold waters and still continue to build their skeletons. Um, they also require an adequate amount of sunlight. And so that's why we don't see corals growing, you know, much far north beyond uh, Port, Port St. Lucie in Florida, which is a couple hundred miles uh, north of where I am today. And that sort of migration, if it ever were to happen, uh, would take hundreds, if not thousands of years. Wow. And the coral may not have that much time, sadly ahead of them. We are going to talk in a few minutes about what we can do about this. But Peter, where you are much farther north uh, in the waters of New England, I think I've read that there are certain fish and, and species and lobster that are every year moving north, what, how many miles? Three or four miles every year? Yes, that, that's right, Magna. They, the, uh, the fisheries here, uh, the fishing men and women of uh, the East Coast uh, know very well that they're uh, fisheries are moving both northward at a rate of uh, several miles per year, 
Uh, they're positively sprinting to Canada. <laughs> uh, and they also move deeper. They move deeper by about 10 feet in a decade. Wow. Okay. You know, I would presume that both of you, uh, perhaps early on in your careers, first started becoming uh, well acquainted with the models that were predicting what might happen to the world's oceans as climate change continues apace. But Katie, is what you're seeing now, does it match the models uh, from, I don't know, five, ten years ago? Or is it exceeding what the models had predicted? So when we think about how reefs perform over time, we we absolutely do understand that they go through cycles. Uh, bleaching, as I mentioned earlier, is a natural stress response. Um, but the amount of bleaching and how early on in the year it started here and how widespread it is uh, was definitely unexpected uh, for myself and many of my colleagues. And I don't specifically myself work on modeling these trends over a long period of time. But in speaking with colleagues who who do engage in that sort of work, uh, this event is actually going to be uh a time of gathering data to essentially refine those models. Um, and we expect that, you know, many of the things that the models predict, like ongoing coral bleaching events or sea surface temperature or at depth surface temperature will essentially have to be refined to include uh, the anomalies that we're recording right now. Oh, the models themselves will have to be changed. Okay, Peter, just briefly, same question to you. Are, is what you're seeing now what was predicted then or is it better or worse? Well, in terms of the planet warming and the ocean warming, it's exactly spot on with what we understood even decades ago. In fact, I mean, uh, the irony here is not lost on me. Uh, there was a study done by uh, Exxon scientists who had extremely good climate scientists back in the 70s and 80s, and their predictions of uh, future warming into the decades match ours uh, that we have today with most sophisticated models and having had decades of learning on top of that, are right on top of each other. So the, the warming that we're seeing now is exactly what we expect. Now, 2023 is unusual because it's an El Nino year and also because we expect it to be a big El Nino year. And actually, the warming that we're going to get this year is a little bit of a spike above that, uh, that nominal trend of increased warming that's been going on for now six or seven decades. The reason why I ask that is because we're living in a world now where the best tools that scientists have to predict the future, and that always comes with an asterisk, right? But the best tools are the models that are being generated by data that's that's currently coming in. So to hear that the models have been pretty darn accurate uh, is quite a, a, a bracing fact. It makes us want to listen more and pay attention more to what the models might predict in the future. One of the predictions that I'm seeing, Peter is regarding something called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or this big group of currents that uh, work like, what, a, a giant heat, or water and heat conveyor belt all around the planet. What might happen to the so-called AMOC? Right. The AMOC, or AMOC, it's a much more... Uh less painful <laughs> uh, abbreviation for such a multi-mouthful <laughs> of syllables. Uh, the AMOC uh, is uh, really the single most important cog of the global climate engine. Uh, and it basically, the surface expression of it is the Gulf Stream, which is this 
uh, surface river of warm water that comes from the Gulf of Mexico uh, all the way up into the subpolar regions uh, north of Iceland. There, that warm water uh, loses its heat and it becomes cold, and cold, salty water is denser, so it sinks. That loss of buoyancy, that sinking, brings it to the bottom of the seafloor where then it returns south, and it looks just like a conveyor belt, just as you mentioned. Now, what drives that conveyor belt is this cool, or the, the cool temperatures, cold temperatures indeed, that we get in the uh, subpolar regions south of Greenland, for example, or around Greenland. As the uh, Arctic warms, and remember the Arctic is warming at a rate that's two or three times the global average. That's something we've been knowing for a long time. So the fact that the Arctic is warming and um, sadly Greenland and, and the larger ice sheets are melting, that warmer, fresher water makes it so that surface water can't sink. Now, I want to just um, pause there for a moment to say that we have actual observations here at the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution where we're actually able to monitor the speed and the flow and the volume of these deep waters uh, associated with AMOC. And it's important that your listeners know that we see no observational evidence for a decrease in the AMOC circulation. That said, uh, we are seeing fingerprints, other indicators on the surface that are consistent with a slowing down of the AMOC. And indeed, there was a study just a, a week or so ago, actually a couple of weeks now, um, that uh, actually put a date on the time when the AMOC circulation uh, may shut down. Uh, in fact, they uh, even went as far as to say it will shut down as early as 2025. Um, Stop, the really? Date, uh, yeah. The median uh, sorry. date. I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to have that. I didn't mean to have that outburst, but that is so soon. Okay. In uh, worst case scenario. Of, <laughs> it made, I mean, the, the astonishment in your voice is the astonishment of uh, climate scientists' voices as well. Okay. So in that worst case scenario, if we have this shutdown of this critical complex of ocean currents, just briefly, what could the potential impacts be? Well, uh, I, I, I was quoted as saying, there's not a single person on the planet who wouldn't know this didn't happen. Meaning what? Well, meaning that uh, if you are a farmer in uh, the central United States, uh, you will see this as a change in the growing patterns and the rainfall that you depend upon to grow your crops. If you're living in uh, tropical Africa, the rainfall shifts further south. Uh, if you um, live in Brazil, the rainfall patterns shift. If you live in Europe, the temperatures change dramatically. Uh, the last time this happened was a long time ago, about 12,000 years ago, and it was uh, associated with the melting of the ice sheets, uh, strangely enough. And uh, when that happened, uh, northern Europe uh, was plunged into a brief ice age uh, for about 1,000 years. But that transition happened in the time it takes to finish a college degree, uh, about four to five years, certainly less than a decade. And the temperature change was 15 degrees centigrade in less than a decade. Mm, okay. Well, Katie, I'm going to give the last minute and a half or so to you because I deeply appreciate the sort of objective scientific rigor that both of you have brought to this conversation. It's uh, alarming, 
But also, I think we need to seek reasons to, even though we might feel that sense of alarm, to be courageous about things that we can do, even (laughs) in the face of this, you know, this broad spectrum of possibilities for our future regarding the ocean. So coming back to coral, help us close out with what are the things that you're doing right now to to, uh, preserve and save the coral from this immediate uh, high temperature stress they're undergoing? Yeah, so right now, uh, us here at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary have been supporting many of our partners in this region that actually grow coral and take care of coral for the effort of reef restoration. Uh, These partners, they do that in land-based facilities as well as actually in these uh, structures in the ocean that we call coral nurseries. So over the last several weeks, uh, many partners have mobilized very quickly to actually bring corals that are that were or are still healthy into these on-land facilities where they can be taken care of until this heat event dies down. And this past week, we were actually helping to build out the infrastructure of one of our partners to move corals from a shallow area to a deeper area. Mm -hmm. And those corals are being moved every single day throughout this week as well. So we have hope that they will indeed make it through the end of the summer. Yeah, well, positive action is really our only way forward, right? We can't be left feeling helpless uh, in the face of what science is showing us is happening in the ocean. So Katie Lesneski, marine biologist at NOAA and coordinator of Mission Iconic Reefs, thank you so much for joining us. And Peter Domenical, oceanographer and director of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, thank you. This is On Point. Point.